Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, dear friends, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We trust that you had a good time in the holiday season. I know it's been difficult for some people, and some people even lost loved ones or have gone to be with the Lord or something like this. These things always make the holiday season a combination of, of blessing and sometimes sadness. But it ends today, the 6th of January. In the Middle East, this is Christmas. The Eastern Orthodox people, the Byzantine churches, they celebrate Christmas today, a few tomorrow, but today ends it. In the Latin tradition, it emerged as something called Little Christmas and had been associated with the visit of the Magi. It became known in Europe as the Epiphany, the Epiphany. <clears throat> um, when the revelation of Christ came to the Magi, uh, who represented the Gentile nations. But it's the end of the holiday season now. It ends right, right now in the Middle East. Their time is not exactly, their calendar does not exactly coincide with ours. In fact, Europe has a slightly different one as well, because St. Nicholas is, is observed as a feast day in Holland and certain other countries. So th there's no one size fits all. Different countries and different areas of the world have different holidays and different interpretations of the holidays. But one thing we all agree on, today ends it. Today absolutely ends it. Take down the Christmas lights if you have any. This is the end of it, the 6th of January. Uh, the Christmas in the Middle East, this is the end of it. Well, we are coming to the end of the second book of Psalms. Remember, Psalms has five books, and we're only looking or focusing primarily at those Psalms that speak of the Messiah and speak of prophecy about the Messiah, and both his first and his second coming. In the first book of Psalms, we began looking in Psalm 1 and 2, particularly Psalm 2, about the eternal nature of the Lord. And up until uh, verse chapter 41, which is the first book of Psalms, the prophecies about the Messiah always relate to his eternal nature. They relate to him as God and his eternal nature. In the second book of Psalms, which we're completing now, it deals with eternity, but it doesn't deal with his own eternal nature. It presents Jesus as more of a man in the character of King David, being pursued by Saul as Jesus was opposed by his enemies, things like that. So there is less emphasis on the eternal nature of Christ as God. It focuses more on his humanity in the second one. The third book of Psalms, is, which will begin today, is different again. The third book of Psalms has prophecies about Jesus, but they're prophecies about his ministry. For instance, um, the temptation narrative 
that will give thine angels charge over thee. And some of the Satan quoted out of context. Or, but it was a prophecy about the temptation on narrative. Or uh, Psalm 78, which the Messiah would speak in parables, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing. Or obviously the Hallel Rabbah, um, the great praise, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 113, climaxing with Psalm 118, and of course the Melchizedek, Psalm 110, which the epistle to the Hebrews builds on. So we'll be looking at these things as we look into the third book of Psalms. So today, fittingly, the close of the holiday season, we look at the end of the second book of Psalms and begin getting ready to look, have our first glance at the third book of Psalms, which begins technically in Psalm 70, 73. But right now we're looking at Psalm 70. Join with me, please. Again, it's David, and David as a type of Christ. <clears throat> o God, hasten to deliver me. O Lord, hasten to my help. Again, here we see the humanity of Christ in David. The fact that Jesus was God never helped him. His deity never helped him. This is called kenosis. Although he remained God, he reduced himself to our level for our sake to bring us salvation and to show us the way is the perfect example. We talked about this when we studied the epistle to the Philippians. It is kenosis. In this second book of Psalms, we see more the humanity of Christ than the deity, okay? And it's in the character of David. David being the Old Testament type of Christ. Now, we would have brought this out in Psalm 23 had we done Psalm 23, but we intentionally omitted it because we already have it on YouTube or from the original Hebrew. I read it in Hebrew and I translate every, every verse. But let's look now. We see him calling out. David was calling out in desperation, but Jesus would be called out in desperation. He'd be calling out in desperation. Let those be ashamed and humiliated who seek my life. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurts. Does this speak of the house of Saul? Yes, the backslidden leadership of Israel. Does it speak of the Sanhedrin with Caiaphas and Ananias? Yes, it does. They sought the hurt of the son of David. They sought the hurt of the son of David, the one who was not only a descendant, descendant of David, but in the character of David, the rightful king. Let those be turned back because of their shame, who say, aha, aha. Now remember, as we've read on the cross, he was mocked on the cross. Let God deliver him. He can't even save himself. Aha, aha. They thought on the cross he was being debunked. Let all who seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. And let those who love thy salvation say continually, let God be magnified. But David says, and he is speaking in a way that has a double entendre for Christ. I am afflicted and needy. 
Hasten to me, O God. Thou art my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Jesus cried out again in absolute desperation. His deity did him no good. My God, why have thou forsaken me? He reacted the way any other man would, except that he was, of course, sinless. Yet he took our sin, although he had no sin. Uh, he took the consequences of what we are so that we could become what he is. Uh, this is, again, typical of these Psalms of David, where David is calling out. Many of them are known as maskeels. This is a musical memorial of all things. This psalm is a musical memorial. Psalm 71 is very philosophical about this life and the position we have in it. But again, there are aspects of it foreshadowing Christ, such as verse 11. God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him. There's no one to deliver. Uh, again, this is what Jesus went through on the cross when his father wouldn't help him, when the wrath of God was poured out upon him. Well, what happens at the end of all this? Let's look to Psalm 72. This will be the final Psalm before we go into the third book of Psalms, commencing next week. The reign of the righteous king, and this is a Psalm of Solomon, Shlomo Hamelik. It is not Davidic. It is of Solomon. Now, with Solomon, we have a tremendous complication. We always have a tremendous complication with Solomon. Because of what is stated of him in the book of Hebrews, and because of the way Jesus spoke of him, Solomon in all his splendor, and because he's included in the index of heroes in the faith chapter of Hebrews, we have reasonable or a preponderance of evidence that he repented, that he repented. But he backslid terribly. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. But Nebuchadnezzar was not a Hebrew. This was Solomon, Shlomo Amelech. Now, when he does that, remember, the number of the beast keeps recurring with Solomon. The 666 talents of gold. It's repeated. It's in Kings and it's in Chronicles. Also, the numbers of steps and the uh Throne, the dimensions are 666. You see the number of the beast used repeatedly with Baxlid and Solomon. It's very complicated because in the Song of Solomon and in certain of the Psalms, like the one we're going to read, he typifies Christ. But during that hiatus when he was backslidden, he typified Antichrist. Now, this is very, very frightening, and it is a great warning. Nobody is capable of greater evil than a backslider. There are people 
who never knew the truth, who were never in the truth, who were never saved. And they are capable of incredible evil. But somebody who knew the truth and then goes into the world and into sin, knowing the truth and having known the way of salvation is capable of a greater evil because they are more culpable for what they're doing. Is there a point of no return? Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 tells us, yes, there is. But Solomon, close as he came, did not cross it. The Lord does not like to save people to lose them. But remember, you cannot meet Jesus and be the same. Somebody who meets the Lord and goes into the world is going to become worse than they were before they were a Christian. After you meet the Lord personally, through second birth, after regeneration, there's only two possibilities. You're going to become better morally, spiritually, or you're going to become worse. Worse than you were before you were a Christian. Again, the depths that Solomon plunged are unimaginable. Yet in the mercy of God, he did come back. This reminds us of the psalm. I'm sorry, of the scripture. Raise a child up in the way he should go, and he will not forever depart from it. It doesn't say he won't depart from it or she won't depart from it. It just says they won't depart permanently. There's no 100% guarantee. But the general, not trend, but the standard situation, when you have children who got saved as kids and knew the Lord, and then they backslide and fall away, at some future point in their life, they will tend to return to the faith of their parents that will tend to return to Christ. The question is, how much of an unnecessary mess do they make of their life in the meantime? Now, we're all going to have a certain amount of trials and mistakes and problems. Those will be sufficient. But the backslider will bring worse on them. And God will not only allow it, but he may have to cause it. When you have praying parents and a backslidden child, a backslidden son or daughter, understand something. It is like a 1 Corinthians chapter 5 situation. God may have to bring calamity, judgment into the life of that person to get them to repent. They might wind up in a mental institution or in a jail. They might wind up in terrible circumstances financially, career failure, failed marriage, failed everything. They may wind up in total calamity that they brought on themselves, but yet God had a hand in allowing it to happen to get them to repent. If you have a child 
who has gone away from the way of truth, and you know they were saved as a kid. And there are many Christians like this, and there are many pastors like this. One of the ways that Satan attacks people in ministry the most is through their family and through their children. If he can't get to them, he goes for the kid. Just think of the godly people like David and Eli the priest and Samuel and Hezekiah. Godly people who had utterly backslidden children. Now, in the New Covenant especially, the Lord is always out to get the backslider back. But understand, it may require some calamity. Maybe even death. Better that than the alternative. However, when we look at Solomon, who backslid royally, who backslid about as much as anybody could backslide, and we see how it happened. He was drawn into idolatry and the worship of other gods even after he experienced the Shekinah when the temple was dedicated. Even after he had the kind of encounter almost that Moses had when the Shekinah came down on the temple. Despite that, he went after other gods. And he was drawn into it by sexual weakness, by sexual weakness. The power of sexual weakness can destroy people. The power of sexual weakness can draw people into other kinds of sin. Solomon being an example of it. Remember, Sex is the second strongest natural drive. It's something God created for good. It is something Satan had to corrupt for evil. C.S. Lewis understood this in the Screw Tape Letters excellently. He explained it as well as anybody I've ever heard. When the older demon was talking to, with the screw tape, he was saying, and to Wormwood, he says, be careful when you use sexual pleasure, particularly, to tempt somebody. Remember, sexual pleasure belongs to the enemy, the enemy, of course, being God. It's something that belongs to God, that God created. If we can corrupt something that's good, that he created for good, we can use it, but be very careful. It belongs to the enemy. And you will find this. People who have the weaknesses sexually of Samson and of Solomon, and they were both drawn into terrible things because of sexual weakness and drew them into other sin. People who get into sexual weakness, it can draw them into other sin because it's such a powerful drive. However, I know people 
who were homosexuals and got saved. I know people who were prostitutes who got saved. I knew a Christian couple in the church I went to in New York at the time as a young believer. She had been a hooker and he had been a homosexual. And they married and had children. Their sexuality was completely perverted by the world, by the devil, by sin. Completely messed up sexually, psychologically, and spiritually. Completely. But after coming to faith in Jesus, and after growing in that faith, he returned to a normal sexuality and a normal attraction. And she wanted a sensitive man who cared about her. And God joined them together. And they were happily married and they had children. It was a wonderful testimony. A wonderful testimony. Because sex belongs to God. The things that are precious to God are the things that Satan tries to corrupt the most. Think of Israel. Think of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, something precious to God. But if Satan can blind his own people to the gospel and to the Messiah, he can blind any nation, any people. He had to get it. He had to get Israel. Now, he will not get it forever, but he certainly has most of it now and has had most of it for most of its history. Sexuality is the same thing. What the world has done with sex is absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. And we all battle with it. Everybody does. This world is, it's very much like the Roman Empire was in the first century. The carnality is all over the place. Things that are not even natural are no longer considered culturally taboo, and it's getting worse. Okay. It's getting worse. But it is supposed to be made in his image and likeness. Spirit moves on the water. God comes together as Ahad in his eternal self and brings forth the creation. And so in holy matrimony, they shall become Ahad, Achdut, and procreate. God's first command was procreation. Let there be love maritally so that there will be children so that there may be more love. That was his plan. A big deal to him. It was to be something that was spiritual, emotional, and psychological, and physical. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. The devil's got to go after it. If he can get that, if he can get that and try to stop the image and likeness of God from being replicated, if he can get that, it's like if he can get Israel, the people were supposed to be lights to the nations. If he can get that, he looks like the winner. Well, he's gotten a hold of these things. This was the weakness of Solomon. 
But when we look at the Psalms of Solomon, we see the remarkable power and grace of God that even somebody who backslides as low as he did, he had 700 broads in his harem. <laughs> he, he, made, he made you have to look like an altar boy. But they drew them in, they drew him into idolatry and to destruction. Now, of course, Proverbs chapters five and seven talk about the woman will draw you into this. Okay. Sex is called in Ephesians, sexual immorality is called idolatrous. Because it'll lead you into idolatry. We see this in the Greco-Roman culture of the first century. The Athena worship, the Hieros Gamos, and the Hieros Delphos. They had cult prostitutes, and people tried to communicate with the pagan idol gods, like a goddess of beauty, Athena, and all this stuff, by having relations with prostitutes consecrated to her. In Rome, there was the Vestal Virgins. They all had all this kind of stuff. And then there was the, not Hieros Gamos, that's where the term on the game comes from slang for prostitution she's on the game but hieros delphos male prostitutes now this kind of sickness we've seen in the first century comes back we have other teachings explaining this the point being sexual weakness can draw somebody into even more serious sin leading them into idolatry idolatry it's what they worship. The sexual experience becomes what they worship, and then they'll even go after other gods. They'll do that. Now, it's no coincidence that false religions, false religions trying to imitate scripture are characterized and defined by sexual immorality and perversion. Think of Islam. You die in a jihad killing people, you become shahadi, and you get 70 virgins, plus the virility to carry out your desires with them. This is the teaching of Islam. Muhammad was told after he forced his stepson to divorce his wife so he could take her. He actually did that. He forced his son to divorce his wife so he could take his wife. The Quran says that their God, Allah, the Arabian moon God, told Muhammad not to take any more wives after that. But he did, and that's even in their own book. Or Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bakir, takes her virginity at the age of nine, marries her at the age of six. You have fundamental sexual perversion in the, in, in the core of Islam. You look at Roman Catholicism. Over a quarter of a million cases known in France. Over 300 priests caught in Pennsylvania. 
that film, that spotlight about what happened in Boston. Oh, my God. Cardinal Mahoney, Cardinal Law. What was the other one? In Washington, McAllister, whatever his name was. This goes all the way up to the Vatican. The most Catholic countries in the world, like Ireland, every bishop has been caught. Every bishop caught protecting pedophiles. All the sickest, most perverse things you can think of with children. This is at the heart of the Roman Catholic clergy. The church protected them. The mafia wouldn't do that. The Italian mafia does not allow child pornography or sexual trafficking in children or anything of that nature. If a member of the mob did that, they'd get whacked. The, the mafia would never protect a pedophile. It takes the Roman Catholic Church to go that low. A mob boss wouldn't do that. He'd have them whacked. A bishop or a cardinal would protect them. And it's proven. Why do you have this sexual filth, perversion? Mormonism. David Lister could tell you better than I can, but I know the basics of what Brigham Young and Joseph Smith were like. Oh, my Lord. Sending guys on missions to be Mormon missionaries so they could I remember I was on an outreach in Utah in an area called Manti where there's a lot of fundamentalist Mormons. I met one guy who had eight wives. Now, the mainstream Mormons don't like them anymore because they're on welfare and they have to support them with the taxes in Utah with the high Mormon population and things like that. But they're the true Mormons. They're doing what Brigham Young and Joseph Smith and the early founders of Mormonism did. They're the true Mormons. And I talked to some of these people, tried to witness to them. We were witnessing and things like that. Guess how old those girls were when they got married? You had one fundamentalist woman named Jelfs. Oh, my. He had 53 women. It's unbelievable. Why do you have such inherent filth, immorality in Mormonism among its chief founders or Islam? Why do you see this in Catholicism? Why do you see this stuff? I could go on about other religions as well. But Mormonism, Islam, and Roman Catholicism, I think, are three familiar to all of us. Why, why do you have this? Satan knows if he can get a hold of sexuality, what it can lead to. Um, I saw this. You know, I was in two cults in my life. I got saved through the children of God led by Mo Berg. Wasn't in it very long, but I did have a born-again experience with him. 
That man went into every kind of heresy imaginable, but he was sexually immoral. He had that kind of power over people. David Cordish from the Branch Davidian cult, which started out with the FBI in Waco, Texas, it was the same idea. And then I was in the Forever family, changed to the Church of Bible Understanding with Stuart Trail. He had this thing with young girls. It's like, whenever you find this thing, you find some kind of a weird sex thing. And that weird sex thing will lead to other kinds of sin. Now, we've talked about this before. Whenever you have a, a, a cultic religion or group, you're going to find exploitation, a corrupting of the scriptures, exploitation, financially milking or using the people to make the leaders rich, and sexploitation. You will find textploitation, exploitation, and sexploitation, but I digress, we have other tapes speaking of. Now what Solomon did was unimaginable. How could a man, the son of David, who saw what he saw and experienced what he experienced with the Shekinah when the temple was dedicated, go the way he did. This demonstrates the power of corrupted sex or extramarital sex, what it can do to people. And of course, we're not only talking about men, there's no shortage of Delilahs in the world. Well, it shows you its power. Because the marital union was to be oneness. It was to reflect oneness with God. God's relationship with Israel, Christ's relationship with the church, reflected in a husband's relationship with his wife. The creative nature of God made in his image and likeness, we become procreative. It's supposed to be flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. It is mental, emotional, it is physical, and it is spiritual. It is spiritual. Uh, it's all three. Well, that shows you the power of it. That a guy like Solomon, who had an incredible encounter with God, could do what he did. However, Solomon goes on to show us the capacity of God to forgive. The New Testament, when it speaks of Solomon in the epistle to the Hebrews, only speaks of his virtues and does the same with other people who messed up big time. When you get to Hebrew, we have a teaching on Hebrews 11 available on our website. And all of these guys made mistakes. All of these guys had, and there were some women, had 
considerable weaknesses. They did some bad things. But we read about them. Samson, Barak, the New Testament doesn't mention their failures, their weaknesses, or their sins. Jephthah killed his own daughter, made the foolish vow. In Christ, it does not mention their sin. It only mentions their virtue. Solomon in his splendor, Jesus said. Solomon represents Christ typologically in the Song of Solomon for sure. The unbelievable capacity of God to forgive. The incredible capacity of sexual sin to draw people into other sin, that's evident. But the capacity of God for grace to forget the bad stuff and only remember the good stuff about these guys, <laughs> including Solomon, including Jephthah, including Barak, including Samson, and including you and me. This is unfathomable to us. The grace and power and desire of God to so forgive and restore. You may have a Samson. You may have a Solomon. They're your child. And you can't understand why they've gone the way they have and done what they've done. I don't want to get too personal, but <laughs> somebody I know very well had a son, and the kid didn't backslide primarily into drugs or immorality. He backslid into religion. Even at the Talmudic Judaism. Came out of it after he got burned, returned to the Messiah. Uh, they will not forever depart from it. When you see Solomon, see grace with a capital G, how somebody could have gone so off and yet been so restored when we look at him from the New Testament. Now, notice, it's only the New Testament who tells us he was restored. Under the Torah, he stood condemned. It was only in Christ it could happen. Now, let's look at this. Verse 1 of Psalm 72. Give the king thy judgments, O God. God is going to give judgment to a surrogate king. This is obviously the Messiah, 
but it is a picture of David's relationship with his son Solomon or David's relationship with Solomon historically being a picture of God's relationship with his son Jesus, the son of David. Look at verse 2. May he judge thy people with righteousness and thine afflicted with justice. Verse 1, the king's son. In Judaism, as you know, Yahweh is called king. Lord God, king of the universe. Yahweh is seen as the king. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted people. Save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Now, this obviously speaks of the conditions of Israel under unrighteous kings and foreign invaders, but again, it's a picture of us. We're the Lord's children in Christ. We need to be vindicated by him. We have an enemy, an oppressor. Let them fear. Let them fear thee while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. A time will come when the sun and moon will not give their light at the close of the age. Praise God that the rapture and resurrection take place. We will not be here for what follows. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. Again, how does this happen? Look with me, please. Most of you know Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. How does the Lord come to us? Through the outpouring of his spirit. These things are figurative, typological of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the showers that water the earth in verse 6. Of Psalm 72. In his days may the righteous flourish, an abundance of peace till the moon is no more. Now, what is the moon? Remember, the moon is an astral body that's closest to the earth, but it has zero light of its own. The moon has no light of its own. It can only reflect the light of the sun. Okay. When the moon does not give its light, it means the church is not reflecting the light of Jesus anymore. Okay. 
It uses this language. Verse eight, may he also rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Now, of course, the psalmist was thinking locally, the Mediterranean and the Arabian Sea, which is basically just the northwest of the Indian Ocean. But that's what sea to sea would have meant to him. We know sea to sea means a lot more than that. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of islands bring presents, the kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Remember Markisheva, the queen of Sheba, brought the gifts to Solomon when she came to hear his wisdom. Now, Jesus pointed this out in Luke, didn't he? Where he said, the queen of Sheba came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but someone greater than Solomon is here. Solomon being a type of Christ. The queen of Sheba, a Gentile woman. Figurative of, obviously, the, the church, Gentile church coming to hear Christ. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Now there are three possible locations of Tarshish. I won't go into them now, but we have a teaching called the ships of Tarshish. I would refer you to that. I don't want to go off track. And let all the kings bow down before him and all the nations serve him. He is the Melech Hamlachim, the king of kings. The other kings will bow down to him. Now understand the Antichrist will attempt to counterfeit this. With the seven heads and the ten horns, he will try to have the other kings worship him in counterfeit of Christ. Antichrist always tries to counterfeit what Christ did what Christ is doing, and what Christ is going to do. Antichrist always tries to counterfeit. Now that applies to the spirit of Antichrist that's even active now, but of course, ultimately, it's the book of Revelation. This idea of the kings bowing down to him is what you see in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist will attempt, with some success, to get the kings of the earth to bow down to him. But in the millennium, they'll bow to Jesus. All nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help. The afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. Now we have to understand the greater meaning of needy. In the New Testament, it speaks metaphorically. 
Of course, it is speaking about poor people. But what do poor people represent? When you see terms like prisoner, slave, needy, in the Gospels, they represent the spiritual condition of certain kinds of people. He who commits sin is slave to sin. Okay. Prisoners. Satan is the god of this world. Okay. And of course, there was the Old Testament saints in the bosom of Abraham. But then we have the needy. The poor. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Unless somebody realizes that they are spiritually impoverished, unless somebody realizes they are needy, unless somebody realizes they are bankrupt, incapable of saving or helping themselves because of their sin and because of the fallen nature of the world and because of the power of Satan, Unless someone is capable and willing to come to that realization, they cannot become a Christian. In order to become rich, you must know you are poor. I don't speak financially. In order to become rich, you must know that you are poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Terms like prisoner, slave, needy, all describe the spiritual states of people. Yes, they have a literal meaning, but that literal meaning is figurative, typological of a deeper meaning. Now let's understand this a bit further. We are told in, for instance, this next Psalm 73, that people who are wealthy in this world think they have need of nothing. People who are materially rich cannot realize their own poverty and their need for salvation as easily as a poor person. It is always easier for a poor person to get saved than a wealthy person. It is easier for a weak person to get saved than a strong person. It is easier for a disenfranchised person to get saved than a person of power and privilege. It is easier for a child to get saved than an adult. Okay. It's easier. Again, the world is in the power of the wicked one. Things which of themselves are not wrong, but neutral and can be used for good, like power and wealth and privilege, will be used for evil by fallen man. That's what happens. Well, let's understand this a bit further. The better you have it in the fallen world, the more hard it is to come to the realization that you have a need or that you're fallen. You think everything is great. 
this next Psalm 73 speaks about that very thing. Well, let's move on. Okay. Verse 14, he will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. This begins to take on what some people would call an eschatological tone. Okay. It alludes to the rapture. So may he live and may the gold of Sheba be given to him and let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. This was the experience of Solomon. May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. Remember, most of the temple was constructed of cedars of Lebanon. Different trees are different kinds of people. Okay, different trees are different kinds of people. Trees of righteousness, Jesus heals the blind man and says the walking like trees. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree does not. The cedars of Lebanon were sent by King Hiram from Lebanon, a, a Gentile king who was a friend of David and Solomon who came to believe and worship the true God. And so he sends these trees. Now we have a teaching, an old teaching on temple typology where we look at how the church is the temple and what these trees represent. But let's look. May his name endure forever. That's talking about Jesus. Solomon, yeah, but really about Jesus. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. This is a prophecy about Jesus. Somehow, Solomon's relationship with his father, David, is a dim hint at Christ's relationship with his father, Yahweh in heaven. And Christ himself is Yahweh. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. But then look how it ends. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The second book of Psalms ends with the prayer of David, the son of Jesse. David ben Ishai. This, of course, relates to the book of Ruth, the house of David from whom the Messiah would come. Now, David is praying for a son that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. He wasn't mainly talking about Solomon. Solomon was only a type, a shadow. 
He was talking about the son of David, Ben David Yeshua. Verse 17, let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations be called by his name. This was the closing prayer of David. Now that's interesting because Solomon wrote the psalm. But Solomon concludes the psalm by stating the prayer, the wish, the desire, the aspiration of his father, David. This is a psalm of messianic prophecy. And these prayers of David will be answered. They were only partially answered in the reign of Solomon. They will be perfectly answered in the millennial reign of Christ. As we've explained on our teaching series on the millennium, the reign of David, when he ruled the nations around him with the rod of iron and he bought peace, and there was a perfect peace between Jew and Gentile because of his friendship and alliance with Hiram. And there was just peace and justice in the land. And Israel reached its maximum geographical limits that it's ever had. That is a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. There are certain things that teach about the millennium. As we said, what the earth would have been like had Adam not sinned, being the first one in Genesis. But the reign of David and Solomon, of the father giving the throne to the son, with peace all around and justice and righteousness prevailing, this is a picture of the millennial reign of Jesus. Solomon writes it, but he closes by saying it was the prayer of his father, the wish of his father. Well, what does Jesus say? It's about the will of his father. And so with this, we end the second book of Psalms. We will continue with our theme of Messiah and prophecy in the third book of Psalms, Lord willing, for next week, we will touch on a few of the interim Psalms a bit, but we'll be focused on Psalm 78, where it says the Messiah was going to speak to the people in parables. Uh, the prediction about Jesus, what parables are, what they meant, and what the prediction written in the Mosquil of Asaf in Psalm 78, that when the Messiah came, he would speak in parables. What are parables, and why does the Old Testament say the Messiah would speak in parables? Remember, in book three of Psalms, there is more emphasis 
on the ministry of Jesus, not just talking about his death, not just talking about his eternal status as God's son, but practical predictions about what he would do and what he would teach and what he would experience. This is more of the emphasis on the third book of Psalms from the Hebrew canon. And that is where we will pick up and resume next week, focusing on Psalm 78. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.